This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. FOMO's kind of like drinking wine. A glass of wine, two glasses of wine. Maybe you get the courage to go up in the dance floor. Okay, great. Try something new. Too much wine, you know, get things get out of hand. Not good. FOBO is like smoking. Um, there's nothing good about it for you, and it hurts the people around you. You're listening to Patrick McGinnis on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Mental health professionals, you do not want to miss some of the online offerings by Praxis Continuing Education. They're offering some webinars for continuing education. There's a great act immersion webinar with Dr. Stephen Hayes, who's been on the podcast. We have an upcoming one with Dr. Robin Walzer, who's been on the podcast as well, on trauma therapy. They also have some really great free online programming that you can check out. You can watch them anytime. There's some really good ones on there, so you don't want to miss it. Go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, to link to Praxis, and you can find a code that you can get $50 off your registration, so check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. Hey, everyone. It's Jill here. And I'm here today with Diana to talk about this episode that I did with Patrick McGinnis, who is the founder of the term FOMO, or Fear of Missing Out. And I just find this so fascinating. I find Patrick's story to be incredibly interesting about how he developed this term and since that time, how he's really delved into research and psychological concepts around this concept of FOMO. And Diana, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I initially didn't think that I had fear of missing out. And I always kind of thought that term wasn't about me until, of course, I listened to your episode. And it pointed out for me some examples, even from this week, where FOMO has really gotten in the way of me enjoying my life and making decisions. So for example, I had signed up for this online course, and I was really excited about it, but it was Sunday morning at 8 a.m. And come Sunday morning, I just wanted to be in my pajamas and make pancakes with my kids. And 
at the same time, I had so much fear of missing out on not taking the course live and watching it later that I was going to miss out on the people that were there or the conversations that were had. And my fear of missing out got so strong, even though I'd made the decision to make pancakes with my kids, it got stronger and stronger. And then one of my colleagues texted me saying, you should do it. And it got even stronger so that here I am in my pajamas making pancakes and I jump on really quickly into the course thinking that I could do both at the same time. That's fear of missing out, right? Oh. And as soon as, I, as soon as I jump on, the leader says, and now we're going to break out into groups. And so I jumped off really quickly. And it's just an example of when that fear of missing out gets so big, it pushes our behavior around. And maybe for me, even clouds my values-based decision-making or just planting my two feet in one spot. Totally. And I think that's such a good example of some of the costs because you end up not being able to be fully present in either place. And what I found really interesting um, was this idea that a little bit of FOMO isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, it makes you really look at the different options and weigh the options carefully, but a lot of FOMO can result in this, this kind of cost. He also talks about fear of a better option on this episode. And I loved that discussion because I, I noticed that a lot in my clinical work where people are going back and forth and back and forth and just paralyzed in their decision-making because of fear of a better option. Yeah. He uses a great metaphor. You'll have to listen to the difference between FOMO versus what he calls FOBO. FOBO. Yes. And that one did really remind me too of the clients that we work with and the ways in which um, anxiety really plays a role in both FOMO and FOBO. So I think that our listeners will really enjoy hearing Patrick's story and seeing how FOMO and FOBO really are pretty deep psychological concepts that I think affect all of us and certainly affect our clients and hopefully will be able to help themselves as well as the people with whom they work. So enjoy this episode with Patrick McGinnis. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. 
Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited. I have a really cool guest with me today, Patrick McGinnis, who is the developer of the term FOMO, fear of missing out. And we're going to talk about how this relates to psychological principles, and I'm really excited to have him here. Patrick McGinnis is an international venture capitalist and the author of Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. Patrick coined the term FOMO, fear of missing out, as well as the related term FOBO, fear of a better option, in a 2004 article in the student newspaper of Harvard Business School. FOMO has since been added to the dictionary, and FOBO has become an increasingly popular framework to describe choice paralysis. Patrick's the host of the hit podcast FOMO Sapiens, which is distributed by Harvard Business Review, and the author of international bestseller, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. He's been featured in the New York Times, Politico, the Financial Times, The Guardian, and Inc., and gave a popular 2019 TED Talk on FOBO and decision-making. Originally from Maine, he has visited 103 countries and now lives in New York City. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Joe. So I'm really interested to hear about this, and I've been listening to your podcast and have read your book, so I know the answers to some of these questions, but I think our listeners will be really interested. First of all, actually, before we start, why don't you define FOMO and FOBO for us. So we're all kind of starting out on the same page. Perfect. I'd love to. FOMO, fear of missing out, is an anxiety often provoked by social media that makes us feel uh, as if something better out there is happening and we're not taking part in it. And it's also this, this desire to be part of a collective group experience. And when we're not in that, of course, then we feel FOMO. So that FOMO, it's, you know, it's basically like something great is happening. Lots of people are doing it. And I'm sitting at home on my couch, not living the greatest life that I could. FOBO or fear of a better option is an anxiety that's caused by this feeling that there is, uh, when you're trying to choose from a group of things, that there may be a better option out there that you haven't discovered yet. And so therefore you keep searching and keep searching and delay making decisions, valuing option value over everything else. And so it's basically like a paralysis around decision-making. Analysis paralysis. Exactly. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so tell us a little more, you mentioned this, or I mentioned this in your bio, but tell us a little bit more about the story, like how you came up with this. I, you know, before we met, I meant to do a Google search, maybe, you know, but I meant to just punch in FOMO and see how many results. I mean, it has to be millions at this point. Actually, I can give you that number. It's about 10 million. Wow. Wow. Um, So that's, I mean, this is crazy. This is like a complete cultural phenomenon. So tell us a little bit about your personal story, how you came up with this. And then if you know, you know, how this became such a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, it's been super interesting to watch it spread. And so I'll tell you the backstory and then I'll give you my theory about how it actually spread across the world, which I've been researching now because when I when I realized it was a thing, of course, I, I wanted to find out how it had spread. So the story behind FOMO is, is that I come from a small town in the state of Maine. It's a very simple place. As a kid, you know, we played in the woods. 
that's all we did really play in the woods, read books, watch TV. And I, you know, I didn't have a lot of FOMO. I didn't really, you know, know what was going on in the world outside of where I lived. We didn't have the internet back then. We barely had cable. And so life was quite simple. And then I went off to college and I studied a lot. So I, I was really in the library. I was massive uh, uh, nerd, uh, I'll, I'll admit. And then I came to New York and I started working in finance and I was always at the office. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of distraction and I didn't have a lot of, of FOMO either. Uh, and then I went to Harvard Business School, which is this place just full of opportunity. And I had a ton of time on my hands and I had saved some money. So I had resources and I found myself in what I, I like to call a choice rich environment. And so I also... At that period of time, this is now 2002 when I started, I had just lived through the implosion of the tech sector and I worked investing in tech companies. So I watched all these things blow up in my face, all these investments go to zero from millions of dollars lost. And then I lived through 9-11 and I lived in New York City at the time in lower Manhattan. So it was you know a mile from my house and it was very upsetting, of course. And so I think you know we're talking about psychology today. I felt this sense of trauma and and I felt very much that um, having lived through those events that I wanted to live every moment to the fullest. And so when I got to business school in this choice rich environment, I just decided that carpe diem was going to be the way that I approached everything. And I did everything all the time. I was at every event. I was at every class. I was at every job interview. I was at every trip. I was at every dinner party. I was at every bar. I was everywhere. I have a lot of stamina. And so <laughs> that sounds exhausting. <laughs> it was, but you know, my view is I've got two years to make the most of this and I'm spending all this money and time. Let me go for it. And so I did everything and I would sort of get up at seven in the morning and go to bed at midnight. And I was constantly either a little hungover or a little thick, but uh, that was the way I lived. And, and my friends noticed this and they also noticed that they did it as well. It was like the culture of our school, all these type A overachievers trying to do everything. And so I started calling this the fear of missing out and I shortened it to FOMO. And then I also noticed that none of us would ever commit to anything. And so I started calling that fear of a better option or FOBO. And when we were graduating, I actually wrote an article in the school newspaper that was called McGinnis's Two Foes Social Theory at HBS all about this culture of indecision and FOMO and FOBO. And I published it in our paper. It was May of 2004. And then I graduated and I went to New York and I started working. Well, interestingly, so how did it spread, right? The, the 1800 or so students that were at Harvard Business School at the time all read this article and it was very popular at the time. And I felt quite, you know, quite proud of myself. And of course, people started using that term uh, the next year, and it was passed on over the sort of the couple of years. And in 2007, Business Week wrote an article about this cultural phenomenon in business schools called FOMO. So uh, that was kind of interesting. They talked about how at Harvard, there's this affliction called FOMO that everybody feels. And so it kind of, I, I saw in my research that it popped up there. And then it was in a book about uh, Harvard Business School that came out in 2008. And then over time, slowly, it started being used in the tech industry because there were all these big events and people started, these graduates of these business schools started working it into their language until eventually in 2013, it was put into the dictionary. Now, I didn't know any of this, okay? I was out living my life, doing my thing. And in 2014, on the eve of my 10-year reunion to business school, so I was literally getting on a, a, a train to go to Boston. I get an email from a reporter who says, I'm writing an article about the origins of FOMO and I've traced it back to you. And I wrote back and said, yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. I did create FOMO. Why, why do you want to 
talk to me. And he said, well, I'm writing an article about this because, you know, it's in the dictionary. And I have no <laughs> idea. And I, people don't believe me, but I literally had no idea. I was working all the time. I was busy. And so I met with him. He wrote an article about, uh, about me and FOMO. And then from there, I realized that, uh, you know, people wanted to talk about this. And so I spent a lot more time now talking about FOMO and, you know, trying to help people who have it. Well, that is so interesting. I can't imagine that must have been somewhat mind blowing to, you know, write something that was meant for a, a relatively small group of people that has now become just a complete worldwide phenomenon. And since you and I have been talking and I've read your book, I've become much more aware of it and and see it constantly in on Instagram and, and Twitter. I mean, it's just everywhere. So, I mean, it's a really cool story. So let's talk a little bit because, you know, I think... I want to talk about what causes it, you know, where it comes from, what kind of makes people more vulnerable to it. And I think this is really where a lot of the psychological principles come in. And in your book, you talk even about the evolutionary roots of this, um, you know, which we talk a lot about in, in psychology as well. So tell us a little bit about what your understanding is of why we have this, this issue. Yeah, so it, I always listen. You, you just heard the story of the origin of FOMO, and FOMO was kind of this jokey thing that we all laughed about. It was actually in the humor section of the newspaper. But then when I realized that it was a thing, and it wasn't just for a, this group of kids and students, but it had gone global. And in fact, I you know I travel for my work all over the world, as you heard in the intro. I've been over a hundred countries, and I would go to countries on the other side of the earth, and people talked about FOMO. So it was really interesting to me to see that it was a global phenomenon in, in countries that were a lot like the U.S. and countries that were much you know, more like economically disadvantaged, too. So I was really interested in, in what was going on. And lucky for me, psychologists are also interested. And so I, I was never sort of very knowledgeable about psychology uh, until a couple of years ago. But I started researching and learning and interviewing people who have this specific knowledge set, which is, you know, so, so interesting to me. And I started reading a lot of the work, the research, because the journals that are out there, the number of journal articles written about FOMO is shocking. And so I read everything and I interviewed a bunch of mental health professionals. And what I, what I realized was that FOMO is really about three sort of major factors in our lives. Factor number one is that there is definitely like a sort of um, evolutionary perspective here. And if you read the book Sapiens, which I, I loved, uh, you learn about the history of humankind. And it tells us about our, our ancestors who lived in East Africa and uh, the original Homo sapiens and all this sort of stuff. And, and these were people who had to know what they had and didn't have, but needed. There was something better out there because if they didn't keep track of those things, they could die. And they also needed to be part of the group. So if they were excluded from the group, they could die. And so as a result, there's a sort of natural desire on the behalf of the human being, it's part of the human experience, to feel the FOMO, right? So that's that's like sort of a very interesting thing. And so these feelings are, have been in, in our sort of DNA from the beginning. Then there's also like a cultural aspect. And one story that I kind of is my favorite, I think, that has to do with this is... is um, it's about the comic strip, Keeping Up with the Joneses. So you probably heard the expression Keeping Up with the Joneses. Well, it actually comes from a comic strip that was published in the New York Globe about 100 years ago about this family 
that lived next door to the Joneses. And the Joneses were these people who lived very large. And this family uh, was trying to keep up with them, especially the father. He was so stressed out. Well, the name of the father of this family was uh, Aloysius McGinnis, believe it or not. (laughs) When I I read that, somebody wrote a paper about the history of, of FOMO and they made that connection and I was just sort of like mind mind blown. But uh, so, so yeah, it's part of, you know, culture. We've always, we're competitive, right? Human beings are competitive and we aspire to more. Now, why then, why did we need a new word? Why did FOMO sort of come out of nowhere? Why was it necessary? Because in the past, in the distant past, or even not so distant past before the internet and social media, a lot of the things that drive our FOMO were very localized. It's like you live next door to the Joneses. Okay, you have to deal with them, but you know that's it. Now, of course, we are able to compare ourselves to people all over the place and see what they're doing and compare it against what we're doing. So we have a reference anxiety as a result. And at the same time, everybody optimizes their image for the online consumer. So you see that picture of the family, the beautiful family, and they, you know, on the beach, and they just everything's looks so amazing and you feel so inferior, but what you don't realize is like, well, actually the couple's about to get a divorce. The kids are terrible, right? Of course. And even right, if you're you only seeing the highlight reel. Exactly. It's the filter. Yeah. And so it is that it is the technology. The fact that, you know, as I travel around the world, you know, I was in like a rural village in Uganda. People have cell phones. They're watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. They know. And so it is a really pervasive global phenomenon that is fed by technology that plays upon something that's already inside of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that point about, you know, evolutionarily, you have a survival advantage when you hunt or gather or travel in groups and that that really boosts that whole social comparison thing. And as a therapist, you know, I think that's one of the things that I have seen increase the most in the past decade or so is this tendency, um, you know, to engage in that social comparison that is evolutionarily normal, but has, I mean, it's just on steroids now that we have social media and, you know, it makes sense that that's really a breeding ground for even more advanced FOMO (laughs) and FOBO too. Um, I loved learning about FOBO. I wasn't as familiar with that. And it made me think of a a friend I have whose nickname, um, people used to call him BBD, that stood for Bigger Better Deal, because he would never commit to any social plans, because he was always waiting to see if there was a bigger, better deal. And when I learned about FOBO, I thought, oh my gosh, that's the BBD, the bigger, (laughs) bigger, better deal. Um, you know, and this was from before social media and so much technology and, you know, and you make a few points in the book too, about how this has really been around for a very long time. We're just so much more aware of it now with social media and technology. And so what do you think are, um, some of the costs to this? So the cost is a very interesting thing because, We'll take them separately, but I think it's interesting when we talk about FOMO. FOMO is sort of, as I mentioned earlier, uh, sometimes we think about it very lightheartedly. And one of the things that, one of the reasons I wrote the book actually is because I was going around speaking about my first book, which is about entrepreneurship, and everybody wanted to take a selfie with me because of the FOMO connection, which is, uh, by the way, that's awesome. And I'll take a selfie with anybody who wants. But I sort of thought to myself, wow, people have like an emotional connection because they'd say, oh, my mom has FOMO, my partner has FOMO, I have FOMO, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it can be funny. But the reality is that there is a tremendous toll. There's actually three... 
three big sort of costs to FOMO. The first is mental health. It's the idea that we are comparing ourselves to an impossible yardstick and so therefore can cause depression, feelings of inferiority and stress, especially in young people. So it's very, it's very problematic. Number two, uh, financially. What's shocking is the amount of people who spend money based on what they see other people doing. There was a study done by Charles Schwab that shows that more than 50% of people say they spend money unnecessarily because of FOMO. Wow. And then uh, the third thing is productivity. You know, that compulsion to be checking social networks and news all the time to, because we don't want to miss out on some piece of information. Uh, that's why we spend so much time on our phones. That's why we're so tied to our screens. So those are the FOMO costs. And on the FOBO side, really, I mean, to me, it's, it, it, it's incredible because FOBO is not as widely known, obviously, but to me, the damage is so much bigger. Talking about somebody who thinks that there's a bigger, better deal out there, not only does that hurt them because they're indecisive, but it hurts their relationships with the people around them because people notice when you are uh, Mr. FOBO or Ms. FOBO and don't want to commit, and then they just stop believing you're credible and they start to realize that you're treating, uh, you're treating them like a commodity. And so it's, it really devalues our, our relationships with each other. And it's a very, very dam damaging way to live your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something that I notice, um, you know, when I think about my clients where I think in some ways the FOBO is the more problematic issue, even though the term isn't quite as known. And so a lot of, I, I'm an anxiety specialist, um, and so when I see people with generalized anxiety disorder, which are the excessive worriers, one of the really common symptoms that isn't necessarily in the DSM where we see what the official symptoms are, um, but a really common symptom is difficulty making decisions. And it comes from this place, um, or the way I typically think about it is that there's this, there's a difficulty with uncertainty and with needing to make the right decision, like as if there's a right one and a wrong one and a really difficult time sitting in that space of, you know, what if I make the wrong decision and there are negative consequences. And as I was reading the book, I was really thinking a lot about that and how much that really does seem like it connects to FOBO, because what if I make a decision and then I find out later that there was a bigger, better deal, you know? And there's sort of this idea that like all decisions are just etched in stone and can't be changed after the fact. So there's that difficulty committing. And so it just reminded me of this idea of FOBO and that what really is needed here is some flexibility. Does that resonate with you? It does. And, and you know, it's so interesting. And as I think about this more and more, because now that I've, I'm talking a lot, you know, when you write a book, right, you're, you're like in a cave locked away and you don't talk to anybody. And then you start talking to people like yourself who are super smart and interesting and have cool ideas. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot more about is the fact that when you never decide because you're looking for something perfect, you never get to move forward to the next set of decisions, the next set of decisions. And the reality is that one of the important things about decision-making is simply moving forward so that you have new and fresh options. And I think when people have FOBO, they're under a very, very wrong sort of assumption that the things that you could potentially choose from um, will still be there whilst you're waiting for that bright, shiny object. But the reality is that the longer you wait, the more 
the, the chances that some of the options that you have at the present will no longer be available later on. And right. think about the response to, to COVID that we've seen with government. So say you're a government, you say, oh, you know, we're not quite sure what to do yet. We, we want to wait and see the data a little bit more. Let's see how serious this is going to get. Well, the reality is that some of the things that you could have done earlier on that would have been effective will not will no longer be. And so you end up making far more dramatic decisions. And so it's important to recognize that even though it feels comfortable to delay decision making, you may end up actually having very few decisions at all to make yeah. at the end because your, your options just fall away. Right. So you end up just really stuck. And, you know, one of the ways that I describe to patients is that it's, it's not that you either have to make this decision, you know, it's not that there are two decisions, the right decision and the wrong decision, that there are decisions and all decisions have consequences, some of which we're going to like, and some of which we aren't. And we learn from those consequences and then we pivot into the next thing. But either way, we're generally moving forward, even if the line is zigzagged. Whereas, you know, the way you're describing is like, you're just sort of running around in circles and not really not really getting anywhere. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and, and that has implications, not just for sort of your personal life, but think about professionally too. How many people sit there asking themselves like, oh, I don't like my job. Is there something better out there for me? There was an interesting uh, survey done by LinkedIn that found that more than 60% of people have FOBO when it comes to their careers. And that's why you find those people who are so unhappy because they're waiting for the perfect thing to come along and of course, we know we don't have perfect information. There's an information asymmetry. We, can, we cannot predict the future. Even you know, if, if there is, quote unquote, something out there, how would we know that, right? And so we, we spend a lot of time in our heads. And I think I talked to a really fascinating um, psych- psychologist about this. His, his view, and I think it's correct, is that you know, the, the pathology comes when we become so involved in our own thinking and turning around these ideas in our head that we completely disconnect from reality, right? That's the the part where it just gets very unhealthy. Right. Well, and I think such a big part of it too, you know, you started out describing FOMO as this anxiety, right? And, and FOBO too, it's an anxiety. And, you know, one of the things that really drives anxiety is a difficulty with uncertainty or ambiguity. And this too is evolutionarily driven, right? That like, you know, if you, if you see a vague figure up in the distance and you're not sure whether it's a killer animal or, um, a source of food. And, you know, if you, if you approach uncertainty and ambiguity without any worry or anxiety, there's a high chance you end up being eaten instead of having a meal to eat. So, you know, early humans, and this may have been in the sapiens book too, but, Um, you know, that there's a survival advantage to avoiding ambiguity and, you know, either staying away from it or even better kind of resolving the ambiguity. And so now we've evolved to be creatures who want to know before we move forward. And, you know, the kind of thing you're talking about in terms of job options and things like that, there's just no way to know. And and I think this is a big part of why people are struggling in this um, COVID-19 time that we're dealing with too, is there's so much uncertainty and we often work really hard to get certain, you know, best example is people who have a, maybe a vague medical symptom Mm. and, you know, like you're starting to have headaches and instead of sitting and seeing what happens, what do people do? They hop on the internet, right? They go to WebMD (laughs) and now something that's probably just happening because you're stressed, the internet is now telling you, you have a brain tumor 
And that action of going to the internet gives some relief in the moment because there's a perception of certainty and control, but ultimately it makes those things far worse, right? So there's either this attempt to get that certainty that ends up making things worse, or there's this unwillingness to sit in it that leads to that just running around in circles and complete stuckness. And the key is being willing to have it, to make space for some uncertainty and make the best decision you can to move forward, irrespective of some of that discomfort and some of those unknowns. And I imagine that that's something that successful entrepreneurs must do very well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're so right. And I listen, I since I started working when I got out of college, I've been through sort of like five major crises um, in terms of, you know, there was uh, economic crisis in Asia that that hit my job in the beginning. And then there was 9-11, the tech, the tech crash. There was the 2008 financial crisis. Now here we have this today. And so I've been able to observe different types of bosses and leaders and other types of people and how they deal with crisis. And it has been quite amazing to me to watch how people react to uncertainty and also learn myself how to react to uncertainty. When the 2008 financial crisis happened, it was, it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me you know, professionally. And I, I absolutely imploded. I, 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 so much anxiety, Jill, that I ended up like on a heart monitor. Um, I had night sweats. I had blurry vision for six months. It was a disaster. Now, that experience changed me, and I decided to change everything about the way I saw the world. We're going through this current crisis. It's not easy at all, and it's certainly. And I don't. I don't feel sort of happy every day, um, you know, <laughs> for sure. But having been through these crises and had having to have learned to be resilient and them and deal with uncertainty has given me sort of the tools to come through this period a lot healthier than I might have otherwise. I felt pretty good. Um, and I've been talking to a lot of friends who are in, in, in your line of work about what they're seeing with their patients. And and it's very difficult. But the wonderful thing is, is that there are things you can do to deal with fear and anxiety, whether it's FOMO and FOBO or it's fear, FOTU, fear of the unknown. Um, <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the as I studied these topics, I, I also looked a lot into, into that. And what are the things we can do? One thing that I started doing about a year and a half ago was meditation. I'm meditating every day, which in the past I had thought, oh, meditating, like this is so new agey. It's, you know, what is that? And it's not me. And, 
It doesn't have to be. It can be a very practical thing that you do that doesn't have to be new agey at all. It can be if you want it to be. But I think thinking about some of these, we, we tend to like have these presuppositions about things. And I was wrong. And I have to say, it's helped me a lot in this period just to stay calm and stay grounded mm-hmm. and not freak out. <laughs> right. And I, and to stay present, you know, it's really about staying focused on the present and having awareness of what you're thinking and feeling so that you can make conscious choices to, you know, to actually choose to move forward in some way um, versus this more, you know, FOMO and FOBO are really this future oriented kind of thought focus. Right. That's exactly right. You're, you're spot on. Yeah. Do you think there are any benefits to it? You know, in much the same way, like some level of anxiety is beneficial. It's what makes us prepare for job interviews and to watch over our children and to look both ways when we cross the street. And, you know, in this current climate, I think we can see the people who have too little anxiety are the ones who aren't social distancing. And so do you think that, Um, And so my point there is like, you know, very high levels of anxiety can be problematic as are very low levels of anxiety. Do you think that there's some benefit to FOMO or FOBO like at a certain level? Here's how I think about that. FOMO is kind of like drinking wine, a glass of wine, two glasses of wine. Maybe you get the courage to go up in the dance floor you know, do the electric boogaloo. I don't know, whatever dance you like. (laughs) I never knew the moves to that one. The electric slide, whatever it was. Okay, great. Try something new. Too much wine, you know, get things get out of hand. Not good. FOBO is like smoking. Um, There's nothing good about it for you and it hurts the people around you. That's, That's kind of my mindset. And why do I say that? Why is FOMO good for you? Because FOMO, and I can see this in my own life, I remember a friend of mine was investing uh, in, some, in, in some companies, like you know, small amounts of money investing in, in entrepreneurial ventures. And I felt terrible FOMO. I was so just, I was just like, ah, oh, like I, I really, you know, and almost like resentful, like, oh, he's doing that. And I, I, why is he doing that? And, but I knew it's because I really wanted to do that. And so I started doing that and it sort of led, led me to a new career. And, and, but I didn't jump in you know, both feet first up to my, you know, head in water. Of course, I did it little by little. And so what I tell people is when you have FOMO, say you want to um, learn to, to cook or you want to um, start to learn a language or you want to start a business or whatever that thing is, uh, great. So you, rather than just sort of quitting everything else you're doing and jumping in full time, you can, what I call, go all in some of the time, try things out, see if you like them. Because the thing about FOMO is, again, we have to remember, we don't really know if it is what we think it is. Mm-hmm. Like things can look great from the outside. And so we're like, oh my goodness, I really want to, I, I really want to move to France. Well, try it out first. See if you like it because you've built up all these things in your head that, that are idealizing it. Maybe you will love it as much as you think, but go to vacation for two weeks and see if you like it before you, you know, sort of sell all your stuff and move, move across the Atlantic. So that's, that I think is a very healthy way to manage FOMO and actually benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And that's such a great metaphor that just made it click right in place for me. Um, and all of us that host the podcast and many of our listeners do a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy that um, incorporates metaphors and experiential exercises. So I think listeners will really appreciate that. It really did. It made it click instantly for me. And the other thing that you, that, that when you gave the example of your yourself and these investments, what that really makes me think of, um, and I, and I think you do talk about this in the book actually is that that little bit of FOMO 
that makes you notice what other people are doing might be keying you in to your own personal values. That like, if you're looking at, you know, if someone else is doing is, is engaging in these investments and you're thinking, oh, this would be a perfect fit for me. This is something that matters to me. That's important to me. Um, you know, this might be something I want to try. So like to the extent that it's pointing an arrow toward what's important to you, it's like a, like potentially a signal, but then instead of just jumping autopilot and trying to do everything everybody else is doing to maybe this is where meditation even can come in is like to get a little bit more thoughtful, like, okay, wait, do I really want to do that? When I think about myself and my strengths and my values and what's important in my life, does this fit with that? Um, and you know, that makes me think too, there's a quote in your book by Warren Buffett. That's something I might butcher this, but something to the effect of the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Does that sound right? Did I get it right? Yes, yes, yes. And so the way I interpret that is that, you know, you might be, you might have your finger on the pulse of all the stuff that's going on, but you're being very choosy about what you actually do and don't do. And that that can be something that's really driven by those personal values. Yeah, and uh, and it is it, exactly. And and if you have FOMO, you'll say yes to everything. And if you say FOMO, you'll never say no to anything because you want to have all your options open. And so that's the the issue. And and people, if you think about this, you think about Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Angela Merkel, great leaders of our time. Nobody ever said, well, oh, you know, um, you know, pick your favorite leader, uh, the, the Parkland kids. Well, they were so indecisive. No, you, you, may, you may like their tactics, you may not like their tactics, but they made a decision and they moved on it and they are, and, and as a result, they have been able to achieve certain things. And so as I think about in, in the current context or, or, or in politics in general, um, the amount of people who aren't willing to take a stand for something the, the, the fact is that when somebody does take a stand, we all remember them and people are drawn to them. And so I mm-hmm. think it's, it's very important to recognize that as you try to optimize when you have FOBO uh, or if you, if you try to do everything and be everything to all people and you have FOMO, what you're really leaving aside, what you can't be is a leader. And that can be in the home or it can be in a business context or it can be in a societal context. But but or you even just being be. just the architect of your own experience. Oh yeah. It, it, right? Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. I love yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how this relates now, because when you and I first were, you know, started talking about setting up an interview, my first thought was, well, I don't know if now's the time to talk about FOMO because there's nothing for us to be missing out on. Like worldwide, we're all sitting at home and there's nothing going on. And we emailed a little bit about that and you had a different perspective that made so much sense to me. So let's talk about how FOMO and, and FOBO too, if that's, if that's relevant here, but um, you know, how those things might be playing out for people while we're all still sheltering in place. It, it, I remember when I emailed you because I was getting that answer from a lot of people. And I think when, when we first started talking, it was just the beginning of the quarantine. And um, first of all, we were all very, uh, it was just a weird time. It's still a weird time, but it was weirder. Yeah. Yeah, Um, And it was just people didn't want to think about these things. And then um, I'll be curious to hear what your experience has been, but first two weeks I kind of agreed. I was sort of like, yeah, there's really, um, I don't have a lot of FOMO because you know what? I had a stack of books and I started reading them all. 
And so I got through three books that I wanted to read for like three years. And then I uh, watched all the TV I could ever want, like a lifetime's worth of television in a week. <laughs> and so I was just feeling sort of fine. And then about three weeks into this experience, I started feeling something different. And it was like this FOMO for all of the life that I could have been living right now, mm-hmm. um, whether in the, in the little things, it wasn't the be- it wasn't the big things. Even it was like literally like going to a restaurant, <laughs> um, taking the subway. You know these little tiny things, going into a place and having you know people in the street, mm-hmm. and and so it was very profound. It, I felt like sort of I saw I learned a new aspect of FOMO that was really meaningful to me. And so, and then of course, family and friends and all of these things. I mean, those things are even much deeper, but it's like, and so I, I realized, wow, this is, this is valuable. Um, this is a great place to learn. And I've started keeping a list of the things that I value and that I will, when I go back to normal life, I will value in a really deeper way. I will make sure that I, that I pay attention to them and, and, and recognize them. And then I started to realize the things that don't matter. And I wrote those down too, because I'm like, you know what? I'm not taking those back with me that, you know, those things are gone. And so that has been very powerful. It's almost like what's happening now is the cure to FOMO because, you know, there's, we're not comparing ourselves to other people. Well, maybe we are, I mean, maybe there's some of, it's not really FOMO. There's still this social comparison of like, oh, that those parents are doing a better job homeschooling their kids than (laughs) I am. You know, there's still the comparison that's going on. (laughs) But because there aren't these, you know, big things that we might be missing out on because we're all in the same boat, we're not comparing ourselves to what everybody else is, um, is actively doing that we're not doing. The comparison isn't us to other people as much as it's us now to us before. And really getting in touch with not, just the things we genuinely miss, not that we're so much we're missing out on, but the things we miss and that hopefully moving forward, that learning lesson is like, I don't need to worry about all the stuff everybody else is doing that I'm missing out on. I just need to worry about the things that are important to me that if they were suddenly stripped away, I would no longer have them. And that's really where I need to be making those choices and spending my time. Is that consistent with what you're that, saying? That, that Yeah. Well, I, it's, so it's been interesting because everybody wants to talk about, there have been there were two articles in the New York times about three days apart. One was FOMO is dead. The other was FOMO has survived the coronavirus. So it's just <laughs> sort of like, <laughs> what? Um, here's how I think about it. I think you're absolutely right. In this present moment, I think the FOMO has become a much more, meaningful, poignant, soulful thing. Um, I also think that when we get back to normal for a period of time, what you're saying, I think will happen and we can maintain that. And by the way, that's the whole point of what I try to do is to help people to get to that spot. I do feel though, like I never uh, lack amazement at human beings capacity to (laughs) revert to behaviors. And so given the fact that, for example, uh, my own FOMO was a, was a sort of a creation of my experiences in, you know, 9-11. And I think that there will be um, when things are sort of normalized, people are going to want to do it all and live as if they've never sort of lived before because they recognize now that life is very fragile. And so there could be actually like a global FOMO pandemic 
I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. That's a good point. It'll be really interesting to see. That's a really good point. It could it could rebound at higher levels than ever before. Oh, I and think then, about myself. I, I'm at high risk. I mean, I'm going to have to use all my tricks to keep myself in line because I just feel like I've missed out on, you know, it could, if it goes on for a year, it's like I, I, I lost a year of living, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and especially um, as someone who travels, I love to travel too. And, you know, that's obviously not happening for a while. And, you know, I think of it almost like maybe it's like a pendulum where the further you pull the the pendulum up, the further it swings in the other direction, but ultimately it kind of settles somewhere in the middle and maybe mm-hmm. we'll see something like that. But so let's talk about, you just referred to all of the little tricks. So, you know, let's talk about like, what, what do we do here? Like, how do we help people not fall prey to FOMO and FOBO? So there is, um, the cool thing about about doing this book was that I spent a lot of time interviewing folks like you and experts and reading the psychology. And then I really sat down and combined all of the things that I was able to learn with sort of my own uh, experience working as an investor in the business world. And, and in, decisions are like investments in a lot of ways. And, and the way we make uh, decisions as investors is very relevant to life. And so I combined all of that knowledge into a bunch of, you know, I guess I would say a series of strategies and then also a bunch of sort of really cool hacks that will help you because strategies are sort of, you know, these these big ideas that are process driven and, 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 and they can sort of get you through the decision points. But then the hacks are just like the quick things that you can do, the quick wins that you can have that really make a difference. So I, I um, let me give you one strategy and then a couple of hacks because otherwise we could, well, I mean, I'm happy to record for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us a couple and then people are going to have to buy the book to get all the rest of the really good juicy stuff. And it is, it's an awesome book. It's really fun. You know, it's very psychological, but also adds a lot more above and beyond what like our normal site people read. And I, I really enjoyed it and I highly, highly recommend it. I think our audience would love it. Thank so you we'll so give much. give them a teaser, but not all yeah. of the answers. Well, for, first of all, <laughs> what's fun is like, you know, I, I, it's still not released yet. So I, I haven't actually talked to that many people who read the whole thing. So what you say makes me, it takes down my anxiety. Oh, that's right. It comes out May 5th. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I have an advanced copy. I forgot that. So we'll have to tell people, is it available for pre-order? It is available for pre-order. It is. Okay, great. So people can pre-order. And actually this will, this episode will come out probably the week after the book is released. So it'll be brand brand new. Yeah, that's great. Good timing. Um, Okay. So let's start with one of the strategies. So one of the things that happens when you have FOMO and FOBO, and by the way, this this is great because this strategy works for both of them. Uh, when you have FOMO and FOBO, is your FOMO and FOBO are manifested on things that don't really matter. So let's take uh, FOMO, right? Okay, I'm sitting at home and I see that somebody went to some restaurant that I've always wanted to go to, okay? And I feel all the FOMO in the world. Or FOBO, um, I am uh, deciding between which shirt to wear today. I'm spending all this time. Oh my God, what wish I wear? Um, now there are three types of decisions in life in my, in, in my philosophy. There are high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes decisions. Both of those are no stakes decisions. They really don't matter. You won't remember them 
in a couple of days. Uh, they don't have financial implications. They don't change your life. They're completely reversible. But if you're spending more than a minute thinking about these things, you're wasting your time and energy. So it's just a bad use of resources. And what's really bad too is while you're sitting there worried about this very unimportant thing, you are avoiding potentially the truly important thing. So you're using up, it's like you're, you're, you're running down all the gas in the tank on the stuff that doesn't matter. And so you need to find a way to move past these little decisions. And so what I do with a no stakes decision, for example, is I say, okay, fine. Am I going to have the chicken or am I going to have the fish? I look down at my watch. The left side of the watch is the chicken. The right side of the watch is the fish. I see where the, where the, the second hand is. And then the watch decided for me. I call it asking the watch. You can do it with your cell phone. Is it like even number, odd number? It's basically like ask the magic eight ball, except they yeah, never say flipping the, a coin. Exactly. If it's between two things. Yeah, exactly. that's great. With, I love the great it. thing about a watch is you can do it with the four quadrants. You can, so you can do more than two. But it's the basic idea here, and by the way, when I first started doing this, I started doing this in college. Somebody told me to do it because I was not decisive. And I remember thinking like, well, this is kind of stupid. Well, you know, 20 years later, I use it all the time. And everybody who I tell about it thanks me later on because it's one of these things that's so simple. Yeah. But yet, it basically, it helps you to just make a decision because you're indifferent and anything is fine. Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that. I'm imagining that some people, you know, especially people who struggle with anxiety, will have trouble even deciding. I can see deciding between high stakes and lower stakes, mm-hmm. but even low stakes versus no stakes. Oh, well, but the shirt I wear does matter because, you know, I'm interviewing you today. And what if you judge me because my shirt isn't dressy enough? Or is there, is that just something that takes practice? Or do you have any suggestions for how you make that decision? Like, okay, what am I going to, which restaurant am I going to go to? Well, this one costs a lot of money and this one doesn't cost a lot of money. So it's not no stakes. And I could see getting really caught up in that spinning of the wheels and never moving forward part of the process. Yeah. And and what you can do there, there is a way to deal with that. So it it may be hard for some people to say, well, that's not a no stakes decision. And part of it is practice, right? Over time, asking yourself the question, well, I remember having made this decision in in one week is a great, it's like a really easy, it's like, if you're worried about what you're going to have for lunch today, can you remember what you, what you had a week ago today? Probably not. I certainly can. Right. But so, so that can be helpful. But then the second thing is, if you still feel like, ah, you know, I need a little bit more than, than sort of, I need a little bit more criteria. Uh, what I do is I ask people, I outsource. So, you know, I kind of generally know like who of my friends has a good idea about food, who knows how to dress, who knows how to give advice on different things. And I just simply ask that person. I do this all the time. I haven't chosen a restaurant in years because frankly, I know myself, I'll be on open table for hours and I just don't enjoy that. I know it's not healthy for me. Right. So I just email the person who I'm meeting and say, you know what? Um, basic criteria, so that's a bit, like, I'd love to eat something healthy or I'd love to have, you know, Thai food. And, you know, why don't you choose a place? And that really solves the problem. So you remember- delegate. Delegation. But I bet the key there though is you have to delegate to one person only. Because some, especially anxious people, I know I keep coming back to that, but what they do is they ask 10 people for their opinions. And now, of course, this increases the problem because you get 10 people with 10 different opinions and you have far more uncertainty and difficulty Mm -hmm. making decisions. So you find that one person that's your food person or that's your fashion person or whatever the low or no stakes decision is. I have those people and I built that up for time. Obviously, I'm not asking 
my mom in, in Maine where to go to dinner in New York City. I ask her for other advice and she gives it to me and she's amazing. But yeah, they figured out and think about that. All of us know people. We can never be master of all. No, all of us know people who would be very happy to help. People are happy to help. And you know, you have the thing and this to your point about canvassing and asking a bunch of people, I did this. I went to Guatemala on vacation and I put it on Facebook and I said, anybody have great recommendations? I got like 40 people. I didn't even read them because I was just like overwhelmed <laughs> by it. Right. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, of course, I went to the, the hotel. I, I asked the person in the front, what's the best place down the street? They sent me there. And then I looked down, it was on the list. So it's just, you know, it's funny how we do that. And so that. it's all about simplification, simplification. Yeah. We are overloaded. We need to take things off our plate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to ask one other question. I know we're, we're getting short on time here, um, but you know, given the role of technology and social media, um, you know, we might think of FOMO as something that's unique to millennials or, you know, younger kids that are growing up with technology and social media. But you talk in the book about developmental fluctuations. And if I'm remembering correctly, there's even, I think it decreases around middle age, but then actually increases again as people age. So can you just talk uh, briefly about like when these fluctuations occur? And if you have a sense of what causes it, you know, and, and the reason I ask is I don't want people listening to assume this is just a teenager problem because I think this is a human problem. Um, I absolutely agree with you that I think this is a big contributor to why adolescents are having increasing rates of anxiety and depression. And I think it's a, it is a population that we could stand to actively intervene with and try to make some adjustments to the FOBO with that group, but it's not just a teenager problem. Well, most definitely. And I think we oftentimes do think of it as either a teenager problem or it's my friend's problem. You know, it's my partner's problem. Here's how it works. And we'll take both FOMO and FOBO here because they're different. FOMO uh, I did a, a call-in radio show a couple of years ago, and um, people call in with their questions and, and their comments, and everybody was talking about how their baby had FOMO. But then somebody called and said their mom, their their elderly mother, had a ton of FOMO, which I thought was really interesting because um, those are very different populations. And what, what I've learned in research is that basically, if you think about what, what draws FOMO into our lives, it's a combination of um, a choice-rich environment or a perception of that with lots of reference points of comparison. So when you're a baby, everything's new, right? You don't want to go to bed because mom and dad are watching a TV show. So you see it in small children. It moves up as you get more independence and suddenly the world opens up to you and you can date and go to parties and, and every experience is exciting and new and there's bigger, better, you know, things that you can be doing. And then when you hit, you know, your 30s and your 40s, you're just too darn busy. Right. And so you, you know, you don't have any time on your hands. You're overwhelmed. You've got so many obligations that you're not, you don't have the bandwidth to even sort of compare yourself. Right. You're like, you're not as focused on that. So your FOMO tends to go down. And the other thing is you have more life experience. And so the information um, sort of asymmetry that, that feeds FOMO, the idea that, they, that there's something out there that's so great. Well, you kind of know you've been to, all the restaurants and the clubs and you've done, you've lived. And so it's not, you, you kind of know if, if you want to do something or not, you just do it because you know, you're an adult. But then as you get older and you realize, listen, I don't have a lot of time left and I've got a lot of time on my hands. I'm not working. I'm retired. Um, but uh, if I don't do something now, if I don't make, make that trip to, to Europe and now I might not be able to do it in a couple of years. 
then you have this mad dash to once again do everything. So there is that sort of interesting curve throughout life. On the FOBO, what's quite interesting is that FOBO, it's hard to have FOBO when you don't have options. It's all, it's an affliction of abundance. And so if you're, you know, uh, when you grow up, you, you, you don't, you don't make a lot of choices for yourself. Your parents tell you what to do, right? So you can't have a lot of FOBO, but as you get older, and especially if you're successful and you have money and people want to be with you and they want to offer you things, that's when the FOBO takes off. Like, you know, some like celebrities in Hollywood who, you know, they, they get a million invites to everything. Of course, they, they're, that, that's a perfect example of somebody who could have tons of FOBO. But then interestingly, as you get closer to the end of your life, you realize, you know, I can't waste time on this stuff. If I want to do something, I got to do it now. And I'm not going to be able to hold all my options open. So actually the FOBO goes away. So that's kind of the, oftentimes FOMO and FOMO are inverse. Yeah, right. Oh, I'm so glad I asked. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. We talked about a couple tricks to address FOMO when we have it. Do you think there's anything we can do to prevent it from getting out of control in younger kids and teens? It sounds like it's a developmentally normal thing to happen. You know, we talked about evolution and that babies have it as soon as they realize there's all this cool social stuff going on. But is there anything we can do to intervene early to try to prevent, you know, that what happens with teens? Yes. And there are two things that, that you can do in terms of, of sort of looking at root causes. And we can talk about some hacks or strategies you can apply. So FOMO, as we know, is about this aspiration. It's this idea of something, this perception that something's better out there for you. And it's also about wanting to be part of the crowd. So number one is when young people have FOMO, getting to think critically about, you know, is this thing as good as it looks is what I'm being shown real or is it sort of marketing and, and filters really digging underneath what is on offer is really important and thinking critically about that. Second is think about motivation. Are you doing this because you really want to do this or are you, you know, sort of jumping off the bridge because somebody else did and learning to start thinking independently about what are, why, why do we want to do things and is it coming from inside of us or is it coming from external? That's a really important framework as well. Now, in terms of the sorts of things we can do that are sort of very practical, number one is um, limit social media, have an appropriate role of social media and not sort of just live on social media, which I know is easier said than done. Number two is um, practicing mindfulness, thinking about very simple ways that you can sort of disconnect and spend time in the present so you can be more intentional. Um, that's always helpful. And the other one, and this is such a silly one, but it's so good. Um, a lot of us keep our phone in our room because the phone is an alarm clock. And so it's like a Trojan horse, uh, brings all, cause it's not just the alarm clock you bring in, it's all the other stuff. And so having a policy of no electronics in the bedroom, very, very helpful. Get yeah. an old alarm clock. I, I, I will not keep my phone in my room. And if it's in the room for some reason, I need a double alarm. I keep it way on the other side. I will. I, I do not have the temptation to wake up in the middle of the night and check my email. Right. Make it hard to get to. Yeah. yeah. And some of these strategies remind me, we did, as you know, we did an episode with Nira Yall um, that I think, I don't remember the episode number, but back in January and his, you know, he has his entire book that's about becoming indistractable and um, some of those strategies overlap a little bit there too. And I think it's really helpful to be thinking about these things at every stage of development, but really trying to intervene early um, with kids because it, it's an uphill battle, you know, for we, those of us who are middle-aged who didn't grow up with technology, we at least have a memory of the way things used to be and how we might um, 
practice some of that, but that that's not the case for kids who are living with this technology from the day they're born. So I think that's really, really, really helpful. Um, well, thank you so much, Patrick. It was such a joy to talk to you. This is so fascinating. And again, I want to encourage our readers to check out FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. Um, it really is a terrific read. I think everyone will enjoy it. And now is a great time to be reading because there's not, you know, there's not a lot of other things we're missing out on, but you don't want to miss out on reading Patrick's book. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Best of luck and take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.